Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Cooked in nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Roald Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we review one picture book and one chapter book. We started off with books that we read as kids. But if you've got a book that you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchbull at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter at trunchbullpod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchbull. And this month, we're reading books about wishes, about wishful thinking. I'm going to tell you about those books in a minute, but first just got a little announcement. After next month, we're going on a little bit of a hiatus, right? Yes. So we're going to do the April episode, which will take us neatly round to three years. Yeah, three year anniversary. And uh, uh, yes, and then we're promptly going to go and have a nap. We're going to take a few months off. Just need a bit of time to recharge. In particular, much of my uh, income tends to come through funded projects, which I don't have any of at the minute. I need to get some. Writing funding bids is very long and very boring and very necessary. So I'm going to spend a bit of time doing that. And then uh, we'll miss you very much and come back into your lovely little ear holes once we've got a bit more collective capacity. Yep. And our books are Knock Three Times by Cressida Cowell and wishes by Monty Van. We're going to start with Knock Three Times. You might know her better for the How to Train Your Dragon series. Right, yes, of course. My little brother was was big into those. Yeah, they're really good as well. This is her series for slightly older readers. The series is called The Wizards of Once, and this is the third in a four-book series. Which is where I've joined the story. But you reckon that worked, right? It worked as a standalone? Yeah, definitely. It's clearly not the final one in the story, which was something I realised because I had the audiobook, which is narrated wonderfully by David Tennant, when we did the uh, favourite audiobook narrator's call-out. About half of all the responses were for David yeah. Tennant doing these books. <laughs> <laughs> and it is absolutely fantastic. It's yeah. a tour de force. Yeah, so I was happily listening along and we're just getting to kind of this final bit where uh, children are on this escape and then it sort of chipped in with this like glossary description of different types of spells. So in the paper book, pages of the book of spells are just put in randomly. Ah, that makes... That's interesting. They must have just clumped them all at the end in the audiobook. Yeah, so they've just backloaded them. That's interesting, Yeah. yeah. That does make more sense, because that sort of came in and I was like, huh, this is a weird little interlude. And then it was the epilogue. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, wait, this isn't the end of the story. But yes, so it, it, it worked fine. I think also, like, Cressida Cowell's narratorial style lends itself really well to jumping in in the middle, because it's um, mm. very sort of, I guess, Pratchett-esque, in that it's a very direct address to... It's a very chatty narrator. The conceit is that... This is all a true story that happened once in the Bronze Age and the unknown narrator who at the end of the whole series will reveal who they are. Yes. This is a a story that they've found and have translated from oldie-worldie language. What that allows in terms of jumping in the middle is like, if any bits that came up that were referencing previous books, 
There was literally just a little aside where the narrator went, oh, what he's talking about there is this thing that happened in book one when, um, you know, he held his hand on a witch stone but took it off too early so the spell didn't work properly. That's what that means. Anyway, on with the story. So yeah, it was kind of completely fine. It's, especially with David Tennant reading it as well. Like mm-hmm. feels just being like read a story at bedtime or like round yeah. a campfire. And in the same way that like if you'd come into the room late, every now and again the person telling the story would be like, oh, just for people who've come in late, what we're talking about here is this thing we talked about earlier. Yeah. You don't get the full like wrapped up ending, obviously, but it's definitely like a standalone adventure. She's very economical with the setup as well. Like, there's a prologue in this that basically tells you what's happened in the first two books in yeah. about a page. Yeah, it just says, this is a story with two heroes, and here we go. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to tell us who those heroes are and where we launch into the story then, Nina? We've got what we think is two heroes and what is actually three. So we're in the Bronze Age, and the British Isles are mostly covered with the Wildwoods. Um, But the warrior people have arrived and they're part of a bigger empire and they're clearing the woods and their thing is iron and technology and agriculture and war. They're Mm. sort of, you know, I guess they're like the beginning of a game of civilization. (laughs) The new technological age, yeah. Sort of clearing clearing forests to put down farms and build forges. But there were already people living in the wild woods and they're called the wizards. So in these books, it's important to note that wizard is a gender neutral term for magical person and witch is like a evil, completely different creature that also doesn't necessarily imply a woman. There are male witches in this. Yeah, and they're sort of like harpy creatures. They're sort of like... Yeah, they're very bird-like. Like anthropomorphized pterodactyls, kind Mm. of. The witches are creeping after them at one point and they're going on foot to sort of stay low key and it talks about them like staggering along on like the elbows of their wings <laughs> and it's like it's so oh gross. cool right okay so they're not these are not human things so yes yeah, so we have we have wizards and we have warriors and then the witches who are a threat to both groups yeah so the wizards and warriors are at each other's throats they don't like each other but there's kind of an uneasy truce and the witches are like the manifestation of evil. And our heroes are, are a misfit from each of these groups. So Zar is a wizard boy. He's the son of the wizard in Kanzo, who's the king of the wizards, and he has no magic. Normally, magic comes in about the same time as your wisdom teeth, it says. Like, your grown-up <laughs> teeth come in and your, your magic comes in at sort of around the same time as puberty. And it just yeah. hasn't happened for Zar. And he's so desperate to have magic and not be you know, a disappointment to his father, that he has stolen some magic from a witch. Mm. So he's got a witch stain from this stolen magic. And the thing is that this magic is like completely cursed and completely evil. Mm. Um, So the sort of his hand is trying to take him over. His hand is full of evil magic. It's like the Witch King's Morgul blade in the Lord of the Rings, like, Frodo gets stabbed and then gradually starts turning into a, a wraith, right? It's kind of like that, but it's going to take ages and ages. Oh, yeah. So he, he got this witch stab in, like, book one, and we're in book three, and he's still sort of hobbling along, but it's getting worse. Wish is the daughter of a warrior queen. So she's supposed to have no magic and hate all things magical, but she's got a super magical eye. And not only is she magical, 
but she has magic mixed with iron, which means she has the magic which works on iron. This is completely unprecedented. Nobody else has ever been able to make magic work on iron. They're supposed to be yeah. antitheses of each other. And along with Wish comes Bodkin, her bodyguard, who's just this like nice, bumbling boy who's been assigned this job to protect this like very adventurous princess. And the three of them are off on this quest to fetch all the ingredients for a spell to get rid of witches and sort of latterly to show that like wizards and warriors can work together. Because the idea that they're working together is anathema to the whole social order. Yeah. They're throughout the book then being tracked down by their parents. So you've got Sycorax, the um, warrior queen, Wisher's mum, and uh, Encanzo, the sort of most powerful wizard in the world, which is Tsar's uh, dad. And they're sort of uh, uh, reluctantly working separately and together at various points to sort of try and track down their children and get them back to sort of an imprisoned kind of safety at home. And stop them having this like incredibly inappropriate relationship. But then where it gets interesting is we find out that they had their own inappropriate relationship. So 20 years ago, Encanzo and Sycorax were in love. They shared a true love's kiss which lingers and they were going to go off and show the world that this was okay. But the social pressures got to them. So I think Encanzo is still kind of very much in love with her in his own way, but she took a, what is it, a spell of love denied. So she deliberately unloved him because it was just too much to not be normal. So there's there's kind of like underlying all this, if you want it, there's this kind of queer reading, there's a sort of like mm. forbidden love, or not not even love, I guess, in the children's sense, but just connection, mm. friendship, cooperation. All these normative forces working against this, you know, bad coded relationship. And parents who've actively chosen not to follow that and are, uh, are then horrified that their children are sort of doing exactly what they did. Yeah. <laughs> And that they feel free to do it and then they're not full of shame about it. Yeah. So it's a really, really interesting dynamic. So that's the kind of mega setup, I guess. So we've got Tsar, Wish and Bodkin. And then we've got Encanzo, Tsar's dad and Sycorax, Wish's mum, chasing them, trying to stop them. And the witches are there as a kind of ever-present threat. So we start the book, the children are flying on a magical door, which is piloted by Wish. This door, incidentally, used to be the door to the punishment cupboard of Madame Dreadlock, who used to be Wish's teacher, who used to lock her in the cupboard for not being able to spell, which is very mistrunchable and the choky, I thought. Yeah, so we've got a, <laughs> we've got a choky situation. Yeah, but you know, Wish has liberated the door and they've been flying around on it like a magic carpet. Using the key as a steering device, which I found yes. very funny. And you've got, um, obviously the key uh, is now an animate object, yes. as well as a, a an iron spoon. And the fork. So the fork and the key are both in love with the spoon. Yeah, <laughs> and the key is sort of like very proud that he's the only one that can steer the door. Until something yeah. <laughs> goes wrong and the fork jumps in instead and is like, oh, I can steer the door and prod food. <laughs> and the key is like, this is very inappropriate. The fork is only for shoveling food. <laughs> Get it out of my lock. Yes. It's a very silly book. It's very good fun. So they're flying on the back of the door. They're flying over the wild woods. Um, I failed to mention also that Tsar, the son of the wizard king, 
has this whole entourage of magical creatures yeah. who are just sort of like his court, Like I a suppose. menagerie of... One of these is Caliburn, and at the moment he's a bird. That's because he's been reincarnated after being killed as a wizard. So he's very wise, he's had lots of lives. He's specifically been assigned to raise and protect Tsar. Like, he's sort of his mentor. Caliburn is essentially Zazu off of the Lion King. Which probably means something to you, <laughs> listener, and doesn't mean anything to me. Caliburn's got this great idea. They're going to go and stay with his sister. Uh, however, they've been looking for this sister's house for three days. They've had no food. They're all getting a bit tired, and Bodkin is having doubts. Because Caliburn's only just remembered that he's got a sister as well. He hasn't mentioned her in the previous two books. And they're like, oh, you know, it's difficult when you reincarnate to remember all your previous lives. It doesn't mean I haven't got a sister. And Bodkin's like, are you sure that she'll let us stay with her? I mean, like, there's a lot of us, and some of us are giants, and some of us are werewolves that we met in prison. <laughs> like, we're quite... <laughs> who were like, a whole host of characters who were always there... And like barely ever mentioned. So every now and again, it'll be like they'll mention the snow cats, and it's like, oh god, yeah, all of those guys are still, <laughs> still with them as well. And Caliburn's like, yeah, 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 sure. She's she's not as prejudiced as everybody else, my sister. It'll be fine. And then they realise that the forest is on fire, and it turns out this is no natural fire. This is a fire that has been set by the warriors because the warriors do this to clear land. Well, I mean, I think this one specifically is Sycorax is chasing them. But this one, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> this specific one is just Sycorax trying to flush her daughter out of the woods. Yeah. So suddenly there's like a big panic. The trees start screaming. This is a really evocative bit. Like the trees start screaming and warning all the things of the wild woods as a fire. And the narration mentions that it's very nice of the trees to do that because the trees themselves can't get away. Mm. They can sort of turn their leaves toward the sun, but they can't uproot themselves and run away. So they're warning everybody who can to move. Yeah. And then the trees are all going to die. Yeah. And Crusher, who's one of Zar's giants, sort of passes through the trees and touches every one of his hands. And he's like, don't worry, trees. The forest will grow back, I promise, and your descendants will be cherished and your sacrifice will not be wasted. I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Man-made fires are never a good idea. <laughs> He's like such like an interesting little mouthpiece for environmentalism is Crusher. Yeah. So Sycorax rides up with all her soldiers. They've got arrows of iron and they start shooting at the children. Meanwhile, the children have also been tracked by two witches. So the witches are invisible, right? The witches are in their invisible mode, which is really great for tracking people. But the thing is, when you're invisible, you're also like feel through. Like you can't touch things, you're insubstantial. And so in order to attack, they have to become visible. Which you said is how sharks operate? Yeah, sharks can't open their mouth and open their eyes at the same time. Sharks have to close their eyes to attack. Yeah, <laughs> so they get as close as they can and shut their eyes and go, bah! <laughs> so Bodkin tries to be really brave, but Bodkin has this terrible medical condition where like, whenever he's in a position of physical danger, he falls asleep. So he's trying yeah. really hard to be awake, but he doesn't manage. Yeah, I love that. I'm Like, I'm not even entirely sure it would go as far as, like, a medical condition. Like, it reminds me of, like... Because I, I definitely used to get a thing when I was younger. If I got any sort of, like, big kind of conflict, like, emotional conflict, I'd just want to mm. go to sleep. I get that kind of, like, just that response to terror of being, like, your body just knocking itself out. 
which is sort of adorable, but as a bodyguard, it's obviously sort of not completely ideal. So the children are not doing a very good job of fighting off the witches. Luckily, Sycorax and her soldiers have very good aim. They sort of managed to frighten the witches away for now. They also shoot down the door that the children are riding. Mm. And one of Sycorax's advisors is like, are you sure you wanted to shoot at that door? I mean, your daughter is on it. And Sycorax is like, oh, yeah, it's fine. Wish has got multiple lives. <laughs> yeah, I don't mind if I kill our friends. <laughs> they have this confrontation. Sycorax says all these really hurtful things to Wish, and this is sort of like a one of the big threads I want to follow through this book is the relationship between the parents and the children. Mm. Sycorax is sort of terminally disappointed in Wish, and Wish has come from being really frightened of Sycorax, really hurt by her rejection. Um, and her disappointment to like actually getting quite brave and quite able to say like no I don't agree I'm not pathetic mm. actually I like myself mm. and I'm not going to change for you and I'm not going to do what you say and her mom is always using her name as sort of an insult sort of part of why I pick this book is because wish is called wish mm. she says oh that's wishful thinking that's childish like she's always using her daughter's name mm. as kind of a pejorative I think that's interesting she does it a few times in the book Anyway, the kids manage to get away. The forest is still on fire. Uh, they're still looking for Caliburn's sister. And suddenly a big bear sort of rescues them from the fire. And they're like, oh, my God, who is this bear? And the bear's like, come on, come on. Takes them to, like, a mound with a chalk horse. Or is it a chalk dragon on the side? But you know what I mean. Like, you've seen these. And then the bear transforms into a human woman called Perdita. And it's Caliburn's sister. And she's running a school for exceptionally gifted wizards inside this mound. She decides to keep them. And the kids, after like two books of adventuring and running away and having no parental supervision and no help from grown-ups, enroll in this school for a few months to sort of like regroup, skill up. Also, Perdita has one of the ingredients that they want for their spell to get rid of witches. And so they're hoping that she'll give them that ingredient. She doesn't really trust them with it. Mm. And I think that's where we'll stop with the synopsis. Cool. I want to give a little example of like the narratorial voice to start with. Here we go. I wish I could describe the food that was prepared that midwinter's evening and the careless way that they enjoyed it, for it truly was delicious. Perdita made it all, and she was the most excellent cook, for until you have tasted nettle soup mixed with magic, you really have not tasted heaven. But sadly, I can't entirely concentrate on how scrumptious it all is. Unfortunately, I'm the narrator, so I can see beyond Pook's Hill, the cosy dome of chalk horse and green grass that is protecting our heroes at the moment, and what I see makes me nervous. I can see the Knuckle of E. The Knuckle of E is a quiet presence in the ocean, but he's a bad one. Mm. The way that the narrator sort of like, so this is a really cosy bit of the story, and I really wish we could stop here, but I'm the narrator, and I can see ahead, and I have special powers, and i got to tell you, there's a bad thing over there. Yeah. I really like that sort of like playful narration. So often in children's books, you get parents who are either they're really bad, like Matilda's parents, mm. or they're like blandly good. Yeah. You know, just sort of like vaguely helpful. These are parents who are doing a really, really bad job. Yeah. Really bad job. But they're also really trying. Yeah, they're completely doing what they think is right, aren't they? Yeah. Like, they're just trying to get their kids back to a place of safety. It's a fascinating dynamic in this, because it's sort of like, the witches are the ever-present big baddie threat, but the the most sort of present constant 
practical threat is the parents. Mm. I mean, the risk there is not being able to complete the quest. There's a bit of a sense of, as well that it's like wanting to play out a bit longer and hiding from mum and dad so that mm. you can, yeah. right? Like there's a sort of like, oh no, the parents are here, like run away. <laughs> but the other thing that becomes really interesting with it is that we spend quite a lot of time with the parents as well. Yeah, so they're a real like fully fleshed out B-plot. That's it, yeah, they, they are the B-story. And we spend time with the parents and you see parents as just these like flawed people trying to muddle along yeah i got to it when i was about 15 right like that point in your childhood or adolescence where you clock that your parents are just people yeah you sort of always know that but like i think for me it was when i started imagining what my parents might have been like when they were my age at the time and it was Mm. like they are just people right and like flawed as much as any other people are and they're trying you have this lovely sequence where they're in the woods together, in the same woods that uh, Sycorax has burnt down at the beginning of the book, and it's yeah. raining. And Encanzo's saying, well, you know, there'd be some trees to hide under if you hadn't burned them all down. I'm just going to make myself this magic weather umbrella. If you want, I could make it bigger so that it covers you as well, so we can both sleep. Knowing full well that she's going to have too much pride for that, she's like, no, I'm a warrior. We like sleeping out rough. <laughs> He's like, all right, cool, fine. And it's like, lashing it down with rain and she's just like lying on the ground with a wet bum kind of (laughs) the bit that i love is when they have to turn into birds to get to the children quickly so it turns out that during their romance Encanzo taught Sycorax some magic so Sycorax is also a warrior who can do magic she keeps it very quiet because it's like shameful and so he's like there's no time like we're gonna have to turn into swifts we need to get there really quickly the children are in danger um I know you know how to do it because we used to like fly around as swifts all the time right and she's like oh I only use magic for like practical purposes and he's like oh what you don't enjoy it Hmm. And there's that little like oh little moment and like she's sort of uncomfortable about turning into a swift because that's what they did as young lovers you know yeah and he and he's like well i'm gonna be a swift because it's the quickest way of getting there and like that's a purely practical decision you be whatever you want to be yeah if you're not a swift then you'll get left behind and that's what's gonna happen yeah <laughs> so up to you and so he turns into a swift and flies off and she's like Ah, oh, all right then. <laughs> but he is still very much in love with her as well. Yeah, I think so. It's a lovely, lovely dynamic and it's so playful. And again, then the, the narratorial voice is there just sort of gently poking fun at them as well. Yeah. The narratorial voice pokes a lot of um, empathy at them as well, I think. Yeah. Even when Sycorax is doing really awful things, the narrator yeah. often pops in and goes... I know that I'm the narrator and I shouldn't really say this because she is a bad guy, but I feel a bit sorry for her, don't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's quite poignant. Like, it's a sort of fun, hijink, sort of silly book, but it, there's a, you know, it's a, it's a really well-written book about family dynamics, yeah. right? and about messed up family dynamics. And then it's so interesting with the kids as well. Wish is an unconventional warrior and Zara is an unconventional wizard. But I constantly just read them as the other way around. Zara is the stereotype of everything a warrior is. He just wants to run around having adventures, fighting stuff. Yeah. And then Wish is sort of like really wise and considered. They are like the polar opposites of their parents. Yes. And isn't that often how things go? That when parents are like really strongly in one way, often their children react really strongly in the opposite way. It feels very true that, you know, you'd have these parents and that these children would result. 
of those parents and their particular ideologies. There's a strong sense in which you can read Zara and Wish as siblings, right? Yeah. And they're yeah. like, kind of like, I guess, like a step family. Mm. I wanted to talk about sort of, Bodkin hasn't got any magic. So they've given him a staff that like sticks things to other things <laughs> to sort of pretend that he's got magic. And even he's thriving, even though he hasn't got magic. And it sort of upsets the power balance between the two boys a bit in that Zar is in an environment where he doesn't really thrive. Mm. And Bodkin, who's this rule following, like really well-meaning lad, not best suited to like physical adventures and feats on the back of a door, but actually does really well in school. Um, it sort of like fuels this rivalry between them. And this culminates in Zar stealing a very interesting potion from Perdita's pocket, which makes them do a body swap for a day. Mm. I thought that was really interesting. It's sort of like quite a sort of classic fantasy idea, the body swap. Which lasts for about a chapter. It's a, it's a fun little side quest, isn't it? So I wanted to read a, the beginning of that chapter because I think it's a really good like way to bring out empathy in both of them. Zar was surprised at how lonely it was to be Bodkin. Of course, the sprites and the animals couldn't hang out with him as much because that would have attracted attention, so they just suddenly weren't there anymore and it gave him a very odd feeling of being totally alone. Did Bodkin always feel this alone? It wasn't that anyone was positively mean to him. They just tended to ignore him when he said things. Their eyes passed over him as if he wasn't really there, apart from Wish. Zar could see why Bodkin liked Wish so much. She was the only person who seemed interested when he said anything. When I get back to being Zar again, I'm going to be a lot nicer to old Bodkin, thought Zar. Hmm. And Bodkin has a sort of like mirror sort of experience of like seeing what it's like being the popular boy and all this like pressure and, you know, having to like maintain this image of cool all the time. I really like that. And it's sort of brings the boys closer together and out of this sort of like slightly more boring love triangle place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which of these characters is your favourite, Matt? So I'm going to go for Bodkin. Yeah? Like partly for the character name, like when we did like the episode on Pog. Yeah. I always described him as like a lovely little Bodkin. So having a character actually called Bodkin and it and it totally fits. He's just like, he's a bit out of place. He's a bit unsure of himself. His body switch moment with Zar is really interesting because he's like, goes through this thing of sort of being like, oh, I've got all of the attention on us. That's really nice. Mm. But then it's like, God, it is a lot of pressure. Everyone expecting you to be entertaining all the time. I can mm. see why Zar is always like kicking chairs over in class for a laugh or whatever it is. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I was just like, oh man, like definitely when I was younger, when I was in school, I was a proper bodkin, just sort of on the fringes, vaguely useless, kind of <laughs> trying to trying to muddle along. Do you know what I mean? Definitely saw a lot of myself in him. And I just think it's so funny, a bodyguard who can't get into dangerous situations without falling asleep. And he's, like, fully aware of it. So there's, like, dangerous situations. Like, right, I need to save the day here. I'm, like, dangling up in the air. It's all really scary. Don't fall asleep. For God's sake, don't fall asleep. And an honourable mention for me would be... Is it the Piskies in Pooksville? Yeah, the Piskies. The Piskies. So they're just these little sort of... Not sprites, because they have a rivalry with the sprites, but these little sprite-like creatures. They're just like this gaggle of like excited children who are desperate to spread any news and gossip possible. 
sort of go, no one must know that these children are here, okay? You're not to tell anyone. No, 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 we won't tell anyone. We won't tell anyone. We won't tell anyone that there's a fox, a giant, two cats. Nine useless sprites. All of them green. (laughs) Worry a girl, a wizard boy, and a... A sleepy bodyguard. We won't tell anyone all that. Yeah, and then um, <laughs> and then the narrator will cut in going, and they immediately fled off towards the dinner hall to tell as many people as they could. <laughs> they, they were a lot of fun. How about you? My very, very favourite is Perdita. I just love her. I love her attitude to children. She's also, and I think you said this, like a little bit careless, like <laughs> a little bit... Oh, they've gone out to fight the Knuckle of E. Oh, well. <laughs> she's like, I mean, she's the, the flip side of the coin to Miss Umbridge, right? I suppose, yes. Got that kind of like prim and proper, old style, posh English boarding school vibe about mm. her. Because I think she's fierce when she wants to be. She knows what yeah. she's about, right? But she, she like this outer surface of like bumbling along. Yeah, softness, fuzziness. And she's nicely emotional, isn't she? She says very wise things and she's very good at like drawing the children out. So my favourite scene in this book is like the PTA meeting where she's like, have you noticed that the more you criticise Zar, the worse he behaves? She points out that their spell is a spell for like real and long lasting love. And they're like, oh no, what could a love spell do against witches? And... Perdita's just like, well, of course it would work against witches. That's exactly the opposite of evil. There's several tears in this spell. And she says, have you noticed that, like, tears are very important in magic and that life is made up of good experiences and joy, but it's also made up of bad experiences and those are valuable too and sorrow is a valuable thing as well, you know. And she's very... She's very pro all the emotions. That's it, whereas Sycorax is, like, deliberately hidden herself from pain and sort yeah. of emotional difficulty, right? Uh, what do we think about Scariometer? Uh, it's not particularly high. Like, there are moments, obviously we've talked about this, kind of, kind of, probably the forest fire is one of the scariest bits. Yeah. Like, the rest of it, we have the like final boss fight at the end that is scary, but is so tempered with humour and kind of that narratorial style of interrupting and commenting on people's particular approach. I'm going to say the first book of this series is more scary. Okay. Interestingly, like, I, I didn't find this one very scary. No, the sort of the like, terror yeah. of the witches comes through much more earlier when you don't really know about them properly. Right. The Wizards of Wands, the first book, is more scary than this. This is not very scary. But what's interesting about it is I think it holds up on par, like, the terror of the evil witches and the terror of parental disapproval. (laughs) They're sort of, like, held with equal levels of fear. I'm not angry. I'm just very disappointed. Yeah. You are running away from, like, these totally evil entities. You are also running away from your parents because what will they do they'll say i'm really disappointed in you but also running away from turning into your own parents right yeah which is like maybe one of the scariest things in the world right (laughs) in some ways so on an emotional level i think it's got lots of range on a purely terror level it's not that scary so i put this at like a five four Oh, I was going to say three or a four. Okay, let's go with four then. 
the characters are like 13, right? Yeah. That feels like a decent sort of age, like in a couple of years either side of that. Anyone from like unconventional family backgrounds or is struggling with their relationship with their parents a bit this would be like a really nice read. And then like history nerds, like kids who are into writing and storytelling Mm. as well, because it's very like it is quite meta. She ends the book on a quote by P.L. Travers, who's the author of Mary Poppins. It says, once we've accepted the story, we cannot escape the story's fate. Sort of this idea that stories have a life of their own and that their Mm. authors are not fully in control of that. Like sometimes it goes somewhere that you're not expecting. Yeah. I think you could read them a little bit younger than 13 as well. So this series starts when these characters are 11. I -hmm. think you could read them at like nine or have them read to you a little bit younger because we haven't really talked about this yet, but like for such a thick book and how many pages is it? 400 pages. It's fully illustrated throughout by Cressida Cowell. It's got much more like pictures in it than you would expect for like this long of a book. It's sort of surprisingly accessible. I think the audiobook makes it super accessible as well. If, mm. like Wish, you have dyslexia and it's kind of difficult to read the words on the page. I think yeah. it's intended, you know, for like people who might find this a bit difficult normally. Uh, and I think that's it for that one. Are we ready to move on to the picture book? Definitely. Yeah. So our picture book is Wishes by Monty Van and illustrated by Victor Nye. Do you want to tell us about the story, Matt? Yeah, it's a lovely book, this, beautiful. Um, Very, very sparse. I think the whole text is something like 75 words or something like that. Um, And it's a story about forced migration, essentially, like refugee experiences. Mm-hmm. That isn't in the story itself particularly specific to any any particular refugee crisis. Like the um, author's note at the end contextualizes it as kind of her own journey was moving out of Vietnam to eventually America when she was young because her dad had fought on the losing side in the the Vietnam Civil War. Mm. So. Maybe the the pictures throughout the book have that context. It feels like that's the sort of setting, but it would apply to anything. And it's a really clever narration. I think, actually, I might just read a few of them. The knight wished it was quieter. The bag wished it was deeper. The light wished it was brighter. The dream wished it was longer. The clock wished it was slower. I'll stop there. These are like one line per page, per double page spread of pictures. It's incredibly sparse with the words. And with this series of sentences structured, like you just said, like the something wished it was something. It's sort of all this passive voice stuff of all of these little elements of the journey that are almost sort of willing the journey itself to be easier. That's what I love about it is like all of the stuff along the way is like, on their side if it could mm. be yeah but it can't it's a very sad story yeah and in the pictures as well like the very first picture kind of just grabbed me for ages and it's just like oh that's a really sad looking child just on the title page which is just uh, a shot through a doorway and uh, the little girl just sitting on the edge of her bed sort of 
kicking her feet with her shoulders hunched, and it's yeah. just the the expression in the in the in the picture is is beautiful. And I, I guess these pictures, the I'm not sure they look like watercolors, maybe or like they look like they might even just be done with like a combination of watercolor and like felt pen. They look very like sort of almost like classic comic book style, but like just really detailed and so expressive. And like the, it feels like there's a a little bit of a sort of manga style in there mm-hmm. as well, like especially with the dog with the really big eyes. Yeah, it's yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, we talked a lot, of, I guess, with the picture books before about like when the words and the pictures work well together. Mm-hmm. And this is a really really good example of that working well. It's a poem, right? And it's yeah. like it's it's a lovely poem. And works really nicely, and then the the pictures just elevate that and give it all of the context. And there's like that trust from the words that the context doesn't need to be squeezed into the words because it's it's there yeah. in the pictures. Like it's a really sort of it's a beautiful collaboration. Yeah. Um. So the pictures sort of tell you that this family, so uh, a mom and some kids, is leaving, and they're leaving behind, I think, her granddad. And a dog. Mm. And the, the picture that really affected me was the saying good, the goodbyes. These are people who never saw each other again after this moment. Mm. And the children look young. And the grandfather's sort of holding the children to his chest. And you can see these tears going down their faces. And in the background, there's just like a face of a clock and the only writing on this page is the clock wished it was slower. Yeah. I just, I find it incredibly moving. And then the family go off in a boat and get to Hong Kong at the end. It's a Hong Kong skyline that they reach. Um, and at some point, the um, there is a first-person narrator, so we have all of these inanimate objects sort of wishing them well. And then finally, like two pages before the end, it says, and I wished... I didn't have to wish anymore. And that's the end. I think like the use of a passive voice is so interesting here. Like it's it's a piece of writing advice that you get given which I think is rubbish, which is like never use a passive voice. I think this is like a prime example of how you can use it really well. I think it really shows that this journey isn't a chosen one, you know. Mm. There's so little agency in this. That's why I think the narrator herself doesn't even wish anything until very near the end is like mm. there's no choice and i think that's what it's really expressing all the agency is with the inanimate objects yeah. and even then they don't they don't have agency they yeah. just have the agency to wish that they had some agency yeah right? like, and that the people are just you know being swept along and it looks like a really uncomfortable journey like the sun's mm. really hot the boat's overcrowded well, terrifying. So I'm ushering at the Playhouse now, and the show I've just had on is The Beekeeper of Aleppo. Mm-hmm. It's an adaptation of the book. It's a, a story about the Syrian war and like escaping as refugees from that. They've got a sequence in the show where they're like doing the, the Mediterranean crossing yeah. on a little boat. And it's just, they do it with sort of projections in the background and sort of uh, it's just terrifying just as soon as the seas get rough in this book we just have it's a little wooden boat with a a single sail yeah but then once the seas get rough again it's like it it looks like when you sort of play with a toy boat in the bath when you're little and splash the water around and (laughs) it's just so fragile 
Do you know what I mean? And there are so many of them in that boat, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's barely any room to move. You could so easily fall out. It's such a clever book. There's two goals of this, right? Like, it's a book for children who have experienced this. And this is obviously, Mm. like, a very life-changing traumatic event that would be hard to put in a book in a way that felt okay, that didn't feel sort of exploitative. Mm. But also for... Most children haven't experienced this. I think it's a really clever way of trying to give a little bit of empathy toward that experience, especially because we're living in like such anti-migrant times. Mm. You know, we've got so much of our press around us is like pushing us to see these people as threats. Our government is pushing us to see these people as threats. You know, mm. so many kids now in schools in the UK, for example have children coming into their classrooms who don't speak English yet. Yeah. Who've maybe had experiences like this. And I think it's really good to have books around like this because it takes the onus off the child to explain what's happened to them personally. If you have a book like this in that classroom, you don't have to go and pester that kid for their story to be able to empathise and understand. You have a tool like this. It gives you an idea of the enormity and the trauma of the journey. I guess because it's not specified, like I guess for mm. the beginning bit, I was going, you clock that it's like, oh, okay, this is a refugee story. Oh, I wonder which re- refugee story. And then immediately that kind of stops mattering. Yeah. There are clues in the pictures, like there's clues to people's ethnicity and there's like sort of... Cultural clues as well. Yeah, it's like incense being used and like the building materials of the houses. It's really useful having that context at the end of what the actual story was, but that like not interfering yeah. into the actual book before that, I think is really useful as well. I think so too, yeah. Is it works really well without that note. I mean, almost like that note is for us, it's for the grown-ups, you know. Yeah, oh, definitely. But as far as the story goes, it doesn't matter and it's not there for the children really because you don't need to make it super specific at this point. Like, this is trying to be a sort of generalist book. It's sort of like a very broad overview of something that's true for a lot of people, a lot of places in time and space. Well, that's it. If not not generalist, then sort of universal, I guess, right? Like, it's not not overbrushing anything, but it's just like, this is... Yeah, it's like a set of largely Mm. shared experiences. Yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the art style, like... I really love what Victor Nye has done with the textures. If you sort of look at like the textures of the floorboards or the textures of the wood, especially on the boat or the bricks yeah. in the walls. So often when you're drawing, you'll make a house look kind of pristine because it's easier to like draw a completely clean wall than one that's got a few dents and dings in it, you know? Mm. And so a lot of like made up spaces often look sort of artificially clean and new and i love that like the house they've come from looks really lived in Mm. you know there's a little bit scratches on the wall there's stains um and i like the way that it goes from like this very interior space of the house to this sort of sometimes even on the same page like exterior spaces of the sea and the beach and the sky and they're often sort of using like the incense to link those. And I looked into incense a little bit, use of incense in Vietnamese culture. And obviously, like, I'm no kind of expert in this, but like, you've got a scene where the mother is using incense to have an experience with a photograph of somebody. We can Im- assume that person's past 
Incense is used as a bridge between the physical world and the spirit world. Like it's the smoke is sort of connecting you to the people who have passed. It's sort of a liminal space. And so then similarly, like in these pictures, on either side of the smoke are two different spaces, like the outdoor Mm. and the indoor. I thought that was really, really clever. It is a big two-page spread and there's no, like, it's not like in a cartoon where you would have like little boxes next to each other like neatly delineated it's much more of a blurred boundary that's just made up by the incense smoke i Mm, think it's really mm. beautiful yeah it's lovely that bit this feels like an opening to lots of different possible experiences but a really gentle one like it's a really gentle introduction to the idea of a migration story it's a really accessible introduction to this kind of like really quite technical art style um It's sort of the opposite of Cressida Cowell. Like, Cressida Cowell makes you feel like, I could do that. Hmm. This sort of feels, like, incredibly polished and technical. Did you have anything else to say about it, Matt? No, I think you've covered it. Okay. That was episode 40 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or love now, as a kid... Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchable at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter at trunchblepod and on Instagram at eventhetrunchable. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone because we've all been kids. Even Even the the Trunchable. Trunchable.